right, Luke 7, beginning of a new section. Last couple of weeks ago, we closed Luke 6. That's this introductory sermon. We called it this new wineskin that Jesus uh, is creating, this new community that he's establishing, this new way, uh, new understanding of what it means to be the people of God. Chapter 7 is a section all on its own, centers around this verse, 18 and 19. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, so he is now in jail, reported all of these things to John, everything that they've heard about Jesus. And John, calling two of his disciples, said uh, said to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's the key question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look to another? John was the one who prepared the way for Jesus, and he's been in jail since Jesus' public ministry started. And he's wanting to know, was it for nothing? Or were you actually the one who was promised? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who God is sending to make everything right? And in preparation for the answer to that question, we're going to look at two miracles today that Luke says, I think what Luke is saying is, these will help you understand if Jesus is in fact the one. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for me, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, but he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So here's the picture. A centurion is basically, uh, he's middle management in the Roman army. So he has a hundred people who are underneath him. He's got a hundred soldiers that he is responsible for. And he and five other centurions, so there's six centurions, are answerable to a guy named a tribune. So you've got tribune. Six centurions and then 600 soldiers. That's the organizational chart. And this guy, he's a Gentile, obviously, and he's heard of Jesus. Jesus spent a day in Capernaum back in chapter 4, verses 31 to 41. You can go back and read it. He taught in the synagogues and he healed a good number of people. So Jesus has a reputation in this town. And when Jesus comes back, obviously there's a buzz. And the centurion is going, I've got a guy. One of my servants, I value him highly, maybe he even loves him, and he's at the point of death. Matthew says he's paralyzed in his version of this story. Luke says he's at the point of death, and he knows Jesus can help. So he sends a delegation of Jewish elders. So these are people who are leaders in the local synagogue. He sends this delegation to Jesus to say, will you come and help? And the Jewish leaders say, absolutely, we'll do that. They go and talk to Jesus and say, this man... He deserves you to come and help him. He's, he's worth your time. He's been really good to us, and he was the biggest donor on our building project. He built this synagogue. So you, you come. And so Jesus starts going. I really don't know what the centurion was, ex, was expecting. It says he sent this delegation to see if Jesus would come to him. But as, as soon as Jesus starts walking, I don't know how he hears about it, but he sends another delegation. This time it's a group of friends, and they say, hold on. 
I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I'm a Gentile. You're a Jew. If you come into my house, you're going to be unclean. I didn't even presume, which is literally saying, I didn't even think I was worthy to come and talk to you in the first place. That's why I sent these Jewish elders. It wasn't a ploy. It wasn't manipulative. It's because I didn't feel like I was worthy of even being in your presence. And so we have this picture. The centurion's got a servant who's almost dead, dying, sends delegation to Jesus. Will you help? Yes, he starts coming. Whoa, hold on. I don't want you to come. And then this pretty remarkable statement. I understand authority. I get it. I've got a hundred guys who do what I say, whether they see me or not. And then I do what my tribune says, whether I see him or not. It doesn't matter if, if he's around or not. He gives an order. I follow it. I give an order. These guys follow it. I recognize you've got that. And so you can say to sickness, personify sickness, you can say to it, go, and it'll go. You don't even have to be in the room. You don't have to see my servant. You don't have to know his symptoms. You don't have to know his name. You don't have to touch him. From wherever you are, you can heal him. I recognize you've got that kind of authority. And Jesus is amazed. He marvels is what this version of the Bible says. There's only one other time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we ever see that Jesus is amazed. It's pretty ironic. Here we've got a Gentile who's never seen Jesus, who's never heard him, who has this great faith. In Mark 6, 6, Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth. And the Bible says he can't do much there because of their lack of faith. And he's amazed at the lack of faith that they have. So again, you have this irony. The people who know him so well, blood, flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, don't believe who he is. And this Gentile, who's never even seen him, has great faith in him. And so this servant is healed in that moment. Before we move on, I just want to kind of segue over here. This is a bit of a tangent. There's a play on this idea of worthiness. Uh, You can see the Jews come to him and say, Jesus deserves this, or the centurion deserves this. He's worthy of you um, healing him. The centurion says, I'm not worthy of having you come into my house. And then he says, I don't even feel worthy to come into your presence. I didn't presume to do that. Literally, that means I'm not worthy. I sent this... That's why I sent this delegation. It's interesting thinking about that whole idea of worth. The Jewish leaders say he deserves this because of what he's done. He's been really good to us and he's built our synagogue. They're approaching Jesus from a place of merit. He deserves it because of his track record. The centurion doesn't do that. He approaches from a place of mercy. He's he's appealing to Jesus based on Jesus' character. I don't deserve anything, but from what I've heard, you're the kind of guy who will help this servant. From what I know of you, what I've heard of you, you're the kind of guy who will help this servant, who will heal him, even though we don't, we don't deserve you to do that. It's two different approaches. One is merit-based and one is based on God's character. You know the right answer in your head is to pro- approach him based on his character, his mercy and his grace, but that's not how our world works. We tend to relate to people based on their resumes and their track record. And it's very easy, subconsciously, to transfer that to the Lord and do the same thing and to begin to relate to him based on how well you feel like you're doing. So if you feel like you're doing well, however you define that, you're you're regularly at church, you're in a small group, or you're praying, or you're planting trees, or whatever it is for you that says, I'm doing well, then sometimes we feel more confident before the Lord, more willing to pray, more willing to ask him for things, just feel more engaged. But when I'm not doing so well then I tend to pull back and distance myself from him. If, that, if you were to look back at your pattern 
If that is your pattern, then you're relating to him based on your track record. You're holding up your resume and saying, you're not saying it with words, but by your actions, you're saying, I deserve this. I've done well, and so now you kind of owe me. You're taking a father-child relationship, and you're making it an employer-employee relationship. You're going from I'm a son or I'm a daughter to I'm a servant, and this is what you owe me because I've done a really good job. That's not conscious for most of us, but I think it underlies a lot of our relationship with the Lord. And, And the test for you is when you're at your worst, when you feel like I've been blowing it big time, do you find yourself able to say, God, have mercy on me. Help me out. Or do you find yourself saying, let me take a bath first. Let me try to clean things up first. And then I'll feel comfortable engaging with you. Again, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. That's 25 miles away. His disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. That's a key word for us. He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, Jesus is walking 25 miles. He gets to Nain. Here's the picture in my mind. He's walking towards the city, and there's this huge procession coming out of the city, and they're carrying this dead body. Don't think of a casket. He's on some type of a platform. And they're carrying this body out. And Jesus, I'm guessing, supernaturally knows that the, this woman is also a widow. This is her only son, and her husband's already died. So for her, bad, bad situation. Very vulnerable to be a woman and not have a man to take care of you in this time. Very difficult for her to survive. Her situation is not good at all. Jesus is moved with compassion. He walks over to this platform where they're carrying the body he says to the to the mom don't weep and to this boy get up and the boy is raised from the dead and obviously there's a huge commotion around that people are saying he's a prophet that ties back to the greatest prophets in israel's history one's named elijah and then his protege was elisha both of them in their ministries raise someone from the dead. And so what these guys are saying is he's in, Jesus is elite. He's in this category. These, these two guys, Elijah and Elisha, they're two of the top guys for us. In our history, they're the, two of the greatest saints, and we're putting Jesus in the same category as them because he's done what they did as well. And then again, his fame spreads throughout the land. That word, my Bible says terror. I don't want you to hear that as fear. It's, it's awe. They're awestruck at what... Jesus has done. So looking at both of those miracles, uh, to me, what we see there, Luke is, is saying, here comes this question, is he the one? Well, here's some preparation so that when we read that question next week, we'll have an answer. And Luke says, yeah, the, the answer is yes, he is the one. If you remember back in chapter 4, we looked at Jesus' mission statement. And the theme of it was he was releasing the poor 
from, from captivity. And that's what we see here. We see the centurion who's at the very top of the food chain. He's rich. He has enough money to build a synagogue. He's powerful. He's got a hundred guys that do uh, whatever he wants. He's got position. He's got status. And then we see this widow. And she's all the way at the bottom of the food chain. She's got nothing. She's got no money. She's got no security. She's got really no hope. So two people who, they're not running in the same circles, but both of them are poor in the sense of recognizing their need for Jesus. Both of them have a need, and they allow God, through Jesus, to meet their need. If you remember when we talked about poverty, we said it's rarely, biblically, is it a material concept. There's, there's a slice of it that says people who don't have a lot of money tend to recognize their need more quickly than people who do have a lot of money. But ultimately, poverty is about a recognition of my need for God. And both of these people are poor. They recognize their need for God, and they allow Jesus to meet that need. So that's what's going on. So what does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? Again, question, are you the one? Answer, according to Luke, yes. And and he gives us three character traits, three characteristics of Jesus to say this is why he's the one. We see Jesus' authority, we see his power, and we see his compassion. Authority, power, and compassion. We've talked about authority and power before, so I'll move through those pretty quick. Authority, that's the right to do something. We've already seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus has the right to forgive sins. He has the right to teach the Bible. He has the right to drive out demons. We see here he has the right to heal. We don't recognize the level and the magnitude of faith this centurion had because many of us have already decided Jesus is God, so we get space, doesn't really matter. doesn't matter if he's in the room. We don't, Jesus isn't bodily present with us, so it's not a big deal to us to say, well, of course he can heal him from down the road. But put yourself in this centurion's shoes. You've never seen Jesus You've never heard him with your own ears. There's someone in your household who you treasure, who you value highly, who's about to die. Jesus is in the town and can heal him. And you're saying, I, so, I recognize this level of authority in you. You don't even need to come into my house. You can do this. You can heal him from a distance. That's why Jesus is amazed. It's not a magic trick. It's not a technique. You recognize I don't even have to be there. Again, you recognize this level of authority in me where I can command someone to be healed without even seeing them. So again, for us, it's not necessarily revolutionary because many of us have already said Jesus is God. The centurion at that point had not. He just recognized this deep level of authority in Jesus. Power, that's raising this boy from the dead. If, if death is the enemy that everyone succumbs to, this undefeated foe, when Jesus raises this boy from the dead, he's saying, I'm stronger than death as well. So authority, that's what Jesus has the right to do. Power, that's what Jesus has the ability to do. And he's saying, the strongest thing out there is death. I can beat it as well. And he says to this boy, get up. Not a lot of histrionics. He's not, he just says, get up. And the boy does. Compassion, that's where I want us to spend our time. It's a hard word. I, to me, it's a bit of a hard word to get my mind around. It's something we intuitively think, ah, oh, compassion, I think I understand it. In the New Testament... Compassion always leads to action. That's why up there it says it's, a, it's an impulse towards suffering, vulnerability in another that leads to acts of mercy and kindness. Every time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
that we read that Jesus feels compassion. It is an emotion, but it always leads to action. Jesus always does something. In the South, we say things like, bless his heart. That is not compassion at all. It's something else. It's pity, or, but it's not compassion in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't say, bless his heart. The New Testament says, I see where you're suffering, and I'm going to do something about it. It always leads to action. That's why, absolutely, there's an emotional piece to it. But I want you to think deeper than that. If you can have feelings without acting, I want you thinking deeper. It's this, again, impulse, this motivation that says, I see your suffering, I see where you're vulnerable, and I'm going to do something about it. You can see the list there of all the things that Jesus does motivated by compassion. Every time he acts, he is not motivated by compassion. Sometimes he does what he does out of obedience. He says, I do what I see my Father in heaven doing. But he is often motivated when he sees the plight of people and he says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to fix this. And I don't know if you ever think of him that way. I don't know if you think of God as a compassionate God. Exodus 34, 6 is one of the first self-descriptions of God. One of the first times God says, let me tell you something about myself. And he says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm full of love or abounding in love. That's what he says about himself. One of his first words about himself is, I'm compassionate, I'm this. I'm this guy who sees this widow and recognizing this is not going to be good. And I don't just see that, I'm moved to action. I have the authority and I have the power to do something about her circumstances and so I'm going to do it. I see this crowd of people and they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I have the authority and I have the power to do something about it. So I'm going to teach them and I'm going to pray for God to send more workers out into the field so that they can know the good news. I see this man who's blind and I have compassion for him. I don't just feel sorry for him. I don't just say somebody should do something about that. I don't just say it'll be okay. I open his eyes. I have the authority and the power to do that. All motivated from this place of compassion. You understand the authority and the power of God. I want you to see the heart behind that. This heart of compassion. So when when John the Baptist comes to... Jesus and says, are you the one? What Luke wants us to say is, absolutely he's the one. He's motivated by this deep sense of compassion for people. And he has the authority and the power to fix whatever's going on in their life. He raised a guy from the dead. He spoke this word and this guy was healed of, and he never even saw him. He wasn't even in the same room as him. Who can do that? Absolutely he's the one who we all have been waiting for. And so the question for us becomes, well, what do we do with him? What do we do with this one who's motivated by compassion, who has all authority and all power? Some of you, at this point, you're going, not there yet. You're not, you're, you're not seeing him as that during worship. There's not, you see the words on the screen, maybe you say them, but there's not a lot going on in your heart. At this point, you would say, I haven't accepted that Jesus is who he says he is. My encouragement to you, if you see Jesus as this, we go to the next one, Alex? If you see Jesus as this person, where, 
where's the hang up? She to think through that. Teach. Jesus lived life better than anyone else. 2,000 years ago, never married, no kids, doesn't even seem like he had a job. How can he relate to us? He lived a more fruitful, joyful, peaceful life than anyone else. Everyone who was around him was better for it. Is there an area of your life where you'd say, I need some direction, healing, your body, your heart, your relationships, deliverance. There are habits in your life that you don't love and you can't kick them. You find yourself kind of treading through the same ground over and over again. Maybe you wouldn't call it an addictive behavior, behavior, but it's definitely an unhealthy habit. It's what deliverance is. It'll set you free from that. It'll forgive your sins. You, you live under the weight of guilt. Are you kind of, there's this balance and you don't know if there's more good or bad. God's an accountant and he's writing down the bad stuff in red and the good stuff in black and there's a whole lot more red in your book than black and you're thinking, how do I deal with that? Maybe it's just one thing. There's this one thing and you're like, I, he can forgive all of this, but not this. Nobody can forgive this. Too ugly, it's too wicked. He can do that. He gives life. At some point, all of us are going to face death, and that's nothing to be scared of. Jesus just showed us. He's stronger. So death doesn't win. If you would say this morning, I'm not, I'm not there yet. My encouragement to you. Luke 15, 20, there's this parable Jesus tells. It's the prodigal son. There's a boy and he says to his dad, he's got a great dad, and he says to him, give me my money. You think of saying that to your dad. If he was, Give me all my money. Whatever I get when you're dead, I wish you were dead now because I just want my inheritance. That's what he's saying. He runs off to a country and he blows it all. Wastes it. He's living in a pigsty and at some point he realizes it would be better for me to be a servant in my father's house than for me to be out here on my own. So he comes back, and in Luke fifteen twenty, we read this description of the Father, who is a picture of our Father in heaven, this picture of God. And the, Jesus is telling the story, and he says, and the Father saw him from a distance, so somehow he's looking for him. I'm wondering, every day, Is he looking for him? The roofs are flat, so is he up on the roof and every day is he going? Is today today the day? Is he going to come back today? I don't think it just happened to be that the one day this kid comes back, his dad happens to see him. And so he's there and he's looking and he sees him. And the Bible says, moved with compassion, that same word. He runs out on the road to greet this boy. And he doesn't say, it's about time. And he doesn't say, where's my money? He doesn't say, what's left? He doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't say, you smell like a pigsty, go take a bath. What he says is, nothing. He gives him a huge hug. And then he tells his servants, he's back. Let's have a party. If that's you this morning, if you would say, I've been living in a far country. I'm not sure if I smell like a pigsty, but I'm moving in that direction. And I'm wondering if life would be better. Hear him say, come home. 
just like in that story, he's sitting on this roof and he's going, is today the day? Is today the day? Are they going to turn around today? And if you'll turn around, that's all you have to do. He'll cover the gap for you. Whatever the distance that you think there is between you and him, it's one step for him. And he'll take it. All he needs is for you to say, I'm, I'm ready to come back. It's that simple. I'm ready to come home. And he'll welcome you in this morning. Many of you have already done that. You've said yes. You recognize, at least intellectually, authority, power. Maybe you get compassion. And yet we choose to live disconnected from him so often. It doesn't make any sense. Honestly, it's, it's dumb. We have this God who sees our suffering, sees our vulnerability. He's motivated to come help us. He has all authority and all power to fix things. And yet we choose to live as functional deists. God set up the world and he spun the top and now he's playing free cell and we're left to ourselves to try to figure things out. I don't know if that's you. I talked to some of you and that's what it feels like. For whatever reason, an unwillingness to invite God in. The easiest way to do that is prayer. An unwillingness to invite him into areas of our life. And I don't get it. I don't know if you're thinking my problems are really not that significant. There's wars and there's famines and there's earthquakes. And he doesn't need to be worried about little old me. God is infinitely able to have his full focus on you. And to have his full focus on the earthquakes and the wars, and the famines. His attention doesn't get divided the way ours does. He can be 100% invested in each person and in each situation all at the same time. We can't get our minds around that because our attention and span is so uh, kind of our level of compassion gets divided up. His doesn't. And so you don't need to worry that your thing is not that big a deal. If he knows the number of hairs on your head, if a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without his knowledge, his desire is to be interested in every area of your life. Those of you who are parents, if you're parents of more than one child, like you get that, you can be fully invested in more than one person at the same time. Those of you who are your parents, if you're siblings, you get that. So don't think your thing is too small. Maybe you're approaching him based on your track record. I don't know. Maybe you've been disappointed in the past. You said, well, he's got all this power and he has all this authority and I asked him to get involved and it didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out. I don't have an answer to you for that. I can say it'll probably happen again. Things don't always work out the way we want them to. My encouragement to you is to not allow that disappointment to keep you from engaging with him now. If there's a mystery as to why did this happen, The mystery is not in the character of God. His character is very plain, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The mystery is in the complexity of the world that we live in. There's so many factors that go into every decision and every event. Let the mystery be there. Don't say the mystery is in God's character, therefore I can't trust him any longer. I don't know if that's where you are this morning. I want you to close your eyes and we're going to pray for a minute. I just want you to track along with me, if you will. And then we'll close with ministry. So I'm speaking specifically to people who would say, if I'm honest, I live 
disengaged and disconnected. If something really bad happens, I'm dialed in. But on a daily basis, if I'm honest, I don't spend a whole lot of time connecting. And and really the best barometer for that would be your prayer life. I want you to hear guilt on that. I'm not talking about how much time you spend praying. I'm talking about what you invite God into. Prayer is not telling God things he doesn't know. It's not information sharing. It's an invitation to get involved. So, Lord, my prayer for each of us who have said yes to you, God, if we're living disconnected, we're kind of, again, these functional deists, we live like you're not concerned. I pray you bring conviction to our hearts. You may feel that in your heart. And then I pray you would show us why. You may have a thought that flashes into your mind. You may have a memory. You may just know this is why. And you may can remember the time when you made a decision and said, I'm out. i got to figure this out on my own. Do it my own way. For some of you, it's not even rebellious. You're just busy. By the time you get done with everything, you're tired, so you go to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. Whatever kind of came to your mind, I just want you to, if you want to live a more connected life, I just want you to pray this in your heart. God, I confess that I live disengaged. And I don't want to do that anymore. And this is why. And you can just fill in the blank. I need you to help me with that. I don't recognize that you're a compassionate God. I see you as sterile. I see you as removed, as distant. I don't see you as one who has all of this power and authority because of these things. I've been disappointed by you. And I want to risk that again. Whatever it is, but I'm asking you to help me. And I want to pray specifically about this area, whatever that area is where you're not inviting him in. I want to pray specifically about this area, and I want to invite you in this morning to my family, to my finances, my future, my past, my work, my decision-making process, how I spend my free time, whatever it is. And I, with eyes wide open, God, I recognize things are not always going to break the way I want them to. Bad things will continue to happen to good people. I get that. But standing here, sitting here, my desire is to live a life of engagement with you. I want to be a person who prays, who invites you in for things that I think are trivial and for things that I think are significant, for things that... Even over time, God, I don't want to quit. I want to be like that persistent widow who kept knocking. I want to be persistent and continue to pray for you to move, even in circumstances where I'm not seeing a whole lot of movement or activity. I don't want to give up. I need your help to do that. In Jesus' name. Also, you may feel like that prodigal, there may be a handful of you in here who would say, 
I've been living in a long, I've been living a far way off. If you're ready to come home, no, if you're ready to come home this morning, you can just follow this prayer in your heart. God, I'm ready to come home. That's all you got to pray. I recognize you're waiting with open arms. And I'm asking you to come and to rescue me. I want to be a son or a daughter in your family. So fill me with your spirit. And make me one of your children. In Jesus' name, amen.